Hello and welcome back to the Strange Water Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Today's episode is a little bit different. It's already a little on the lengthy side, so I'll keep this intro short. Alex Golubinsky is a veteran attorney who these days has shifted most of his time and energy to crypto. Before he found himself sucked into the Ethereum black hole, he earned his stripes as an attorney focused in offshore finance. Before Vitalik had captured our hearts, Alex was living in the U.S. Virgin Islands, building expertise in the more mysterious side of global finance. During this conversation, you'll learn what offshore finance is. You'll learn the history of how we got here, and we'll leave you some starting points on where to learn more. One more thing before we begin, please do not take financial advice from this or any other podcast. Ethereum will change the world one day, but you can easily lose all of your money between now and then. Long ago, I told Alex that my experiences at a multinational conglomerate gave me absolute certainty. DeFi will replace traditional finance. His response? Maybe. I'm not sure. But I don't think that DeFi is coming for traditional finance. I think that DeFi is a real threat to offshore finance. Time to find out why. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on the Strange Water Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rex. It's uh, it's really exciting to be here. I love the podcast, and I'm and I'm just stoked to be here as a guest. Thank you, and I'm really excited to uh, to to have the conversation. So before we get into anything at all, like I really believe that like the important part of every conversation is like the people in it, and so um, I would love to just like begin this this call with like. Who are you? And like more specifically, like how did you find yourself in this like incredibly niche corner of um, not only like a highly specialized um, profession, but uh, yeah, just a very specialized part of a very specialized pr profession? Sure. Yeah. So, so I'm an attorney. I've been practicing law um, for sixteen years, seventeen years since since two thousand six, and um, I uh, I basically I found my way into offshore finance first and then into DeFi kind of uh, ancillary from my experiences in offshore finance, but the, but the two expertises somewhat merged. So I started working in offshore finance in um, uh, 2013 when I started working with a law firm in the U.S. Virgin Islands um, that specializes in, in U.S. territorial tax incentives. So that's in the U.S. Virgin Islands and in Puerto Rico. And through that, I got a lot of exposure to other, you know, varieties of offshore finance, you know, especially like other jurisdictions in the Caribbean, uh, kind of how the, those, you know, you have the territorial jurisdictions, which are kind of like quasi foreign, and then you have truly foreign jurisdictions from the US. And then you get into, um, from the perspective of the rest of the world, the US is offshore. And so how kind of the US plays into offshore finance from the perspective of like Europe and Russia and China and the Middle East. And then, um, you know, through through that experience, I started working with um, a couple different investment banks um, in Europe that do uh, what's called citizenship planning. So I started to learn about how uh, different countries have what's called citizenship by investment programs. So you can basically, uh, I think the crass way to put it is you can buy a passport. It's crass, but it's not 
mark. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of view my experience in, in, in offshore finance as sort of twofold. One is, you know, how to leverage um, offshore or foreign juridical entities, i.e. non-human being entities uh, to get sort of financial and tax benefits. And then um, how to leverage uh, passports in order to get uh, benefits for natural persons. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I will take a... Uh, a very, a very non-sentimental view of citizenship, and I don't want anybody to feel like uh, that, that's my professional view. That's not how I feel about any particular country, um, emotionally, that is. And then, um, you know, sort of through that, through my experience of just representing different types of companies in different tax incentive programs, I got exposed to a lot of what I'll say are like early adopters of crypto and kind of got exposed mostly to Ethereum, less, less, less sort of Bitcoin, but uh, uh, you, you know, <laughs> I re really like uh, saw the power of Ethereum kind of from the outset. Um, didn't believe in it enough that I'm retired right now, but you know I was there on the sidelines. Um, and uh, and and uh, and then I started working actually for a um, a hedge fund and a uh, family office for uh, for about three years, which is based in the, in the Virgin Islands, a company called um, Skyler Capital which is a natural gas derivatives hedge fund. And, um, you know, uh, it, it was it was also another interesting um, insight into, into offshore finance and how offshore entities uh, kind of provide a certain level of lubrication for the entire global financial system. So, you know, in order to transact in something as like important as like natural gas derivatives, which is like a, you know, a sort of necessary insurance market to make sure that that uh, natural gas is actually delivered around the world to people who need it. You sort of have to use these series of um, offshore entities. And so you end up with a global financial system uh, that's kind of dependent on the existence of what we think of as offshore entities, but at the same time antagonistic towards those entities to a, to a certain level. And so, um, you know, once I rolled out of that position, uh, I was kind of looking for stuff to do. I'd moved back to the States, moved out of St. Thomas and uh, decided I would so jump in. We'll, uh, we'll get to that mistake that you made, whether that's leaving the Virgin Islands or DeFi. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I like before we like kind of move on to the meat and potatoes of this conversation, like I really want to drill into like. What, what happened in 2013 that got you interested in this whole world, right? Like, because especially for us non-lawyers and like the people that are still like romantic about everything from like citizenship to money to like a lot of things, like just the words offshore, offshore finance, like start with like kind of a CD connotation. And I think that both you and I like understand that it has a role and that that's the wrong way to look at it. But what brings like a young lawyer who's like looking for his like role in the world to um i guess the caribbean <laughs> yeah so it's it was uh it was kind of asked backwards to be to be totally honest like i uh so in my heart of hearts i'm a trial attorney although i don't do much trial work anymore and uh i always uh in the early part of my career i did a lot of work in u.s tax court which is sort of an odd court um and there is this tax incentive program in the Virgin Islands, not very many people know about it. Probably more people know about the program in Puerto Rico, uh, especially 
people who are in crypto or adjacent to crypto as Puerto Rico has done a very good job of uh, courting that industry in the U.S. Virgin Islands hasn't. But um, in, in the early part of this century, so circa like 2000 to 2004, the IRS did a really aggressive investigation of the Virgin Islands tax program to where uh, they brought some criminal charges against some people, some accountants and uh, no attorneys got, they tried to do criminal charges against some attorneys didn't get swept up, but a lot of investors. And then followed by this massive civil audit program that a lot of those cases worked their way up into tax court. And I actually got interested in this program, not because it had anything to do with offshore finance, but because um, I really love uh, the idea of, uh, of these complicated tax court trials, right? Because normally tax court's very like accounting kind of oriented. So you sort of stipulate with the IRS, like this, these numbers mean this. And, you know, it's, it's very like, there's not a lot of like, cross-examination and all the fun courtroom stuff. And I saw these cases is like, oh, wow, these people are like in tax court trying to prove that they lived in a place, which is this like highly fact-intensive um, uh, set, you know, you know set, set of proofs to do in a trial. And I never really had seen anything like it in, um, in, in tax court before. So I started, I was living in LA at the time. I started working with a firm in the Virgin Islands uh just remotely and then that started to be like i was doing more and more of it and they were finally like well hey why don't you move to st thomas and i was like okay very different place in los angeles but uh uh no regrets uh, and then and then so then once i got into the firm started doing more of the trial work um you know one of the things about doing what they call controversy work in tax is that you really see how things go wrong and so I think that gave me a pretty good perspective into how do you set things up correctly. And, and I started working more and more on the planning side to make sure that people taking advantage of these incentives uh, don't have these problems that, you know, force their uh, principals to spend, you know, millions of dollars defending themselves from the IRS, although sometimes unavoidable. So is it fair to say that you um, kind of like stumbled into this world just based on like this this uh coincidence of the u.s case but you found yourself staying because like it hit all the right buttons in terms of like complexity and like intricacy and like craziness but um you know still is like squarely on the line of um like solving legal problems as opposed to like solving human problems like under the cloak of the the legal system yeah so so definitely that um but also the um you know when i was an undergrad i studied political science i think as a lot of people who go to law school do but i was always very interested in issues of like power and sovereignty and sort of like what that means in the global political system and uh you know one of the things i found fascinating about working in a u.s territory and dealing with territorial law is I was actually, I felt like I was right up on the front lines of like actual like theoretical political science issues as they're implemented in the law. So like mm. you have, like what makes a territory, I think what makes a territory different from a state, right? Um, you can answer that question strictly legally, but mm -hmm. there's also like a highly theoretical answer to that question that has to do with sovereignty and the federal system and how power sort of emanates and ultimately I think ties into um, the colonial system that the US was created out of, 
right? And then sort of took up the mantle of in the in the 20th century. And um, and then I started to see as I started to work more, uh, because one of the very interesting things about living in the Caribbean is that um, you have a lot of different cultures that are actually quite proximate to each cultures and political systems that mm-hmm. are very proximate to each other geographically. So the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico you know, separated by about 40 miles as the crow flies, completely different cultures, mm-hmm. somewhat similar political systems. But then you go to the British Virgin Islands, uh, which is maybe 10 miles from the U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, very similar cultures, but very different political systems. Mm-hmm. And then look, if you look at like the French um, uh, departments that are in the Caribbean compared to like St. Bart's, compared to the how the the former Dutch colonies are treated, like St. Martin, which is only about 100 miles from, from the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, you have this real sort of mashup of all of these different political systems. And it really, you know, I think it's romanticized, overly romanticized a lot of the times. But there's a long period of, of, of sort of world history where the Caribbean was really the crossroads of global civilization. Mm-hmm. It's not really the, the case anymore, but the vestiges of that, I think, I think are really interesting. And so, you know, when I started to like compare, okay, I had a good opportunity, I guess, to compare like, this is how laws and colonialism are manifest in the U.S. Virgin Islands compared to how they're manifest in the British Virgin Islands compared to St. Martin or, or whatever. And um, it, to me, it was, it was endlessly fascinating there, to just sort of pick apart these different systems and, and how they fit together. Yeah, well, I I must be paying you to segue us perfectly into our discussion because um, that was beautiful. And I think like what we're here to really like pick apart and understand is like (laughs) the the meat behind what you just said. And like, I think for me, like the biggest shame of youth and like is that we're forced to teach history in these moments where like they actually are irrelevant to kids and like you do experience it as just like facts you have to memorize so you can move on and i think like one of the at least for me like one of the best parts about like becoming adult and like gaining interest is like realizing that like everything exists especially in 2023 like everything exists because somebody did something to make it that way and um like the more you learn, the more you realize, like, everything is complex and nuanced and, like, especially in something like the Caribbean where, you know, like, for example, like, something that almost no one knows is, like, what is the most profitable colony that ever existed? It's Haiti, what is currently known as Haiti. And, like, a reflection of why Haiti is so screwed up is because of um, that history. And so I think when we say offshore finance, what we think of today is, like, the Panama Papers and Jeffrey Epstein and uh, like Saudi people and or like Saudi oligarchs and Russian oligarchs and yachts and all this stuff. But like the right way to understand what this is, is like just the current result of like hundreds and hundreds of years of history. And so I think like why I why we're here is to like really understand like what is offshore finance and so like i know it's a huge topic with uh, a lot to say about it but i guess like my ask to you would be like where do we start yeah sure so i think that like i think that actually trying to define what we're talking about when we're talking about offshore finance is a great starting point um and it's difficult right oftentimes oftentimes the hardest questions i find are like defining kind of basic concepts um but so i think that you know when people 
refer to offshore finance in the U.S., right? Or actually, I think this is true in, in, in Europe as well and in, in other parts of the world. You know, what they're talking about is the use of um, juridical entities. And when I say juridical entities, I mean uh, a person, right? There's two types of persons, natural persons and juridical persons. Uh, natural persons like you and me, somebody with flesh and bones. A juridical person is a legal fiction. It's a, a company, right? Something that... Uh, a, a person that exists only in the law, but does not have a corporal body. And, uh, and so when we talk about offshore finance, I think what we're talking about is the use of uh, juridical entities to escape the um, reach, uh, either from a taxation or regulatory standpoint, of a government, right? So if you talk about offshore finance, you're, the implication is an existence of onshore, right? And so what is offshore is a, a question of perspective, right, where you stand. And so uh, especially it's very interesting from the perspective of the U.S., right, because we have a, as Americans, we sort of think, okay, offshore finance, that means, you know, especially in crypto, like Cayman Island Foundations, Panamanian Foundations, BVI Corporations, da, 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 da. You know, I think in the hedge fund world, it's more Cayman Island Limited Partnerships that, that you know, some of European entities. But that's very uh, American, right? Because from the perspective of a European, the U.S. is offshore finance, right? So, so like, if you can use the way that we think of, you know, a BVI corporation as, as a, you know, being beneficial, and, and I'll take a sort of step back from that. The reason a BVI corporation or any of these entities would be beneficial is because, they are not by default taxed in the US. In a foreign corporation is only taxed in certain circumstances in the United States. And they do not by default uh, give the entities, uh, give the identities of their beneficial owners to the US government. So there's, so there's sort of a twofold benefit to using something like a BVI corporation. Um, but those same benefits exist, let's say for a British person using a Delaware LLC. Right. And so and so you have um, uh, you, you, the, the idea of, of what is offshore finance is is fully dependent on what is onshore finance, which is depending on where you are and, 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 and where you're from. So to really like drill in on that point that you're making, I think what you're saying is that it is not fair to like think that there is this separate distinct financial system that is called offshore finance that like this the 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 same way that an american would be like i want to do something um that like my government doesn't like for whatever reason like i would access this system like there's like a british person or a chinese person would not have the same thought and go into the same system i think what you're saying is that like offshore is always a perspective shift and is always about like how like we live in a globalized world and how can we basically use like the, you know, uh, permeable, like globalized world to achieve a goal with that, that my specific domain uh, wouldn't otherwise allow. Is that kind of what? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that the idea of permeability is critical um, to analysis. Uh, you can almost think about it as like, a system of arbitrage, right? And not necessarily financial arbitrage, but uh, regulatory and tax arbitrage, right? And so any arbitrage opportunity, you have to like 
gauge it from 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 your starting point, right? And so there are benefits in certain jurisdictions to people from other specific jurisdictions that may not be there for somebody who has a different starting point, right? And so um, that has always been a facet of the global financial system, right? So I think it is really important to not, and there is a, a very strong tendency to somewhat like demonize offshore finance and be like, well, that those that's like this sort of gray area, like quasi-legal way of going about uh, global finance, but it's actually, it's always been uh, like part and parcel, right? It's always it's always been uh, part of our global financial markets. Just like it's almost like if you look at people want to draw a line, right, between uh, legal markets and illegal markets because we have those two terms. I think we have a sort of intrinsic understanding of what legality and illegality is. But in fact, just like there's a sort of gradation between offshore and onshore finance. There's a gradation between legal and illegal markets as well, which sort of maps on, not one to one, but but you know, it maps on to this idea of of like what is onshore, i.e., legitimate, and what is offshore, i.e., illegitimate, and then you find out well, there's like shades of gray of legitimacy, kind of all the way down. Yeah, I mean, I think your point exactly is like if like we have to acknowledge that whatever was going on with Jeffrey Epstein is the same offshore finance that like what happens when all of Apple's profits are repatriated to Ireland. I don't know if that's the right word, but like it's the same idea and like that the at very different levels of like morality, let's say, legality aside. Yeah, well, and it's interesting too because like so one of the reasons and, and bringing up Apple is I think really really interesting cogent and so Amazon all the big tech companies, you know, their involvement with offshore finance Ireland's a big locus of it. There's, there's sort of other jurisdictions that, that play into these large multinationals and, and what their offshore plays are. But a lot of it ties into um, intellectual property, right? And and this is like, especially in tech, um, intellectual property really drives profitability of companies. And the whole point of intellectual property is it doesn't exist anywhere, right? It's not tangible. So the idea that um, intellectual property exists in Ireland, in Seychelles, in wherever, is just as legitimate as saying that it exists in the United States because it doesn't exist. It doesn't have a, a corporate reality. So, so we can kind of just decide where, where we want its locus to be. And again, it comes down to this kind of arbitrage, right? Where you have Ireland saying, we see a role for ourselves as it, we can bring tax revenue into Ireland, in effect, by charging less, right? So, like, so it's almost like rent, right? Rent for intellectual property. Like, if we charge less in Ireland, we will get more. And then on the other, the pressure on the other side is you have, well, Ireland still has to exist in the world, right? So if they say they're going to charge a zero percent uh, tax on on royalties that get paid to, you know tech companies that are headquartered in Ireland, they're going to have a bunch of pushback, right, from the from the UK on down, right, and be like, hey, you can't do that. And so uh, there's pressure, there's pressure on both sides uh, in, 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 in that sense. And, you know, I mean, I think that, uh, and so that's like, that's one part of it, right? But like, it, there's, there's, 
one thing that's not present when you talk about like Apple and Amazon, right, is there's not a real desire, um, maybe on the margins a little bit, but there's not a real desire to like um, shield ownership of Apple or Amazon. They're publicly traded companies. I could be an owner, you could be an owner, sort of move in and out of that, right? There is a, um, a driving purpose of offshore finance, which is simply to conceal actual beneficial ownership. And, and I think that that's a, um, uh, obviously in crypto and DeFi, like in our industry, let's be candid, right? That is a like drive, that is a, a factor that is driving people into offshore finance because there's regulatory uncertainty in the US, people don't want to get in trouble. So it's like, okay, if we, if we do these same activities, the, the sort of legality of the activities is uncertain in a way that, uh, the actual uh, people who are profiting from these activities is occluded through the use of an entity. Um, that that's like very um, useful for for people and sought after. But uh, that's another form of arbitrage, right? So it's like if the BBI says, um, yeah, for you know four thousand dollars a year or whatever the price is, you can have a corporation organized in the British Virgin Islands. And nobody's going to be able to find out. Nobody. That's always a, a little bit of a loose term. Is going to be able to find out who the ultimate beneficial owner is. Um, that's great, and like, and like, that's very impactful in the BVI in a way that like, it's not in California, right? California doesn't really care if you're willing to pay California three thousand dollars a year to have a corporation in California because they don't really make their money from that, and and you know, a meaningful source of revenue, but compared to Delaware or Wyoming, right? Where there is, that does become a meaningful source of revenue, um, you know, in the US. Man, there's so much to be said about this topic. It's crazy. We're, I'm now scheduling you for multiple uh, podcasts, but I think on the heels of us just mudding the waters on what even offshore finance is, like, let's, let's uh, like tighten the scope a little bit because look, like it's easy to say, this concept of offshore finance is basically like putting money in places that are outside of like your sovereign country, right? And like that concept goes all the way back to like, I don't know, like, I mean, I can come up with like Roman examples. I can come up with like ancient Egyptian examples, Sumerian examples, like everyone has wanted to do that since taxes were invented, right? But like, there is something special here. And like, we can talk about why like basically the genesis of like the European takeover of the world and like the European system that we all live under, right? But like there is uh, a system that like was forged, as you were saying, through the Caribbean and like specifically, and please push back on any of these pieces, right? Um, but specifically through like the organic growth of what the British Empire began as, as this like territorial hungry monster. And then over time was like, sophisticated into like a basically like uh an island hopping or like a islands around the world of like everything from military bases to um like special jurisdictions and like that that is like the underpinning of the um offshore or really the global financial system um and then it's something that we as americans inherited um in exchange for like allowing britain to survive world war ii um, and so, like, all to say is, like, um, 
offshore finance is this like inf infinitely expansive thing, but like there is a system, right? Like there is something that exists that is concrete that like we should talk about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, and, and just to touch a little bit more on the history of it before kind of bringing us to like how the system works today, it's, it's really the whole colonial um, system one of the underpinnings of it is this concept of limited liability, right? Because these uh, colonial undertakings, we think of the successful ones, right? We think of the ones that, that, that were like, continue to sort of manifest to this day, but there was a lot of unsuccessful ones. And the whole idea behind it was, well, if we wanna encourage people to take risks in the form of like these uh, offshore conquests, then we need to uh, limit their downside risk, right? To the to the amount of capital that they put at risk in the. Um... And so, just because like that concept is so ingrained to modern people, like, can you talk about what life was before that? Well, and, and there's there's actually like a key shift in the 19th century as well, because like when you had so so when you had something like uh, so let's say like the British East India Company, right, which is the, the famous one, right? Or one of the famous ones. Uh, uh, you know, you, you had the, the British crown, right? Said, hey, we want to give um, an incentive to people who are like not directly related to the crown to go out and, you know, colonize India. I don't think it was that straightforward, but that in-, in, in... One that is actually that straightforward is like literally Christopher Columbus was like one guy who like, on the day the Catholic monarchs beat the the Muslims and expelled them from Spain, walked up and was like, I'm an Italian, I'm a sailor, but like, I'm gonna do this for you. And like, it's literally that clear. Yeah, yeah, and so, and so part of the sort of crown sanctioning of that is the creation of these charter companies, right? Where it's like now, this is, and this is where, this is a very like key development, I think, in, in, the, in the global capitalist system that manifests to this day, right? Where you create this idea of corporate person in it. So, but in the 17th century, um, it's very tied into the monarchy, right? Like I cannot say I'm doing British East India Company too in the, in the 17th century, because like that's up to the crown, whether, whether or not that charter exists. And all of that whole scope of limited liability derives from the sovereignty of the state. Um, what the shift that happens in the 19th century is that uh, this idea of charter companies, uh, which can be sort of formed uh, on a person's own initiative, again, with the permission of the state, right, um, really takes off and becomes a key factor in the development of uh, U.S. industrialism, kind of for the same reason of limiting risk that, that, that the the initial more narrow concept was, was developed in colonial expansion. So sorry, again, I, I just think I missed um, like that, like, because again, this is just like default to the way that modern people understand like ventures, like in a world where you don't have limited liability, like let's say Christopher Columbus goes out and like, like we don't know what's about to happen. But if I don't have limited liability and I maybe contributed to that, um, that expedition, like, what am I putting at risk if I don't have limited liability? Well, everything, right? Because because especially like, well, especially in Europe, right? Where there's this concept, like everything in the sense of your liberty, right? Because we in the US, one of the big 
differences between the U.S. and and the, the monarchy and, and England was that the U.S. did away with debtor's prison, right? And so the idea that I can take some risk, I can take risk where I'm taking on more debt or potential debt than the assets that I have was critical to, to you, you creating a shield around that was critical to getting anybody to do it because before you had that shield, right? Before you had the crown saying, yes, we will make this a company that, that is sort of ring fenced internally. Like if you were just doing it on your own, right? If you're just like, I'm going to hire, you know, a bunch of sailors and I'm going to buy a boat or I'm going to take a loan for a boat and I'm going to send it around the world and it all fails and the boat sinks and I owe a bunch of money to people. Then like without that limit of liability, I'm going to debtor's prison. You know, I'm, I'm actually like losing my liberty as a result of that. And so obviously um, we did away with the sort of liberty somewhat of, with the liberty aspect in the U.S. But yeah, yeah. Um, but but the uh, the idea of of limited liability, I think, as we think of it today, right, really started in the 19th century, where like I can create a corporation and I can contribute ten thousand dollars to that corporation so that it goes and like does stuff. And like maybe I have one hundred thousand dollars that I didn't contribute to the corporation. The whole point is that if whatever I'm using this corporation for goes out and falls flat on its face and I end up owing a million dollars to a bunch of different people because it was a dumb idea and I managed it poorly, da 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 da, da. Um, All I have at risk is the $10,000 that I put into it. It creates a shield for, for the rest of my assets. And I think that it's really difficult to overstate how critical that is to the development of American industrialism because you have, um, there is, Without it, once you um, accrue a fortune, you have very little incentive to take any risk if you can't limit your liability, right? Because it's like, well, I don't want to lose everything to gain a little bit. So you, you kind of have to have this. And, and, and that's how, that's really where the modern idea of the corporation comes from. So in a certain sense, as we think of offshore finance today, and this is really funny, right? The first offshore jurisdiction was New Jersey. Wait, because are New Jersey or the oh yeah, New Jersey, Jersey. Yeah, yeah. New Jersey, like across the Hudson River, right? Because like there was throughout the 19th century, this um it was an arbitrage opportunity, right? You had New York City developing and uh a robust administrative apparatus that went around doing business in New York City, and then across the Hudson River in New Jersey, they said, We see an opportunity here um to create a lot of people to create corporations in New Jersey that can then really do business in New York and sort of sidestep the regulatory apparatus of the New York State of New York State. And so that starts to develop in the mid 19th century with uh, New Jersey kind of being this like they didn't call it offshore. It's just just a river. Right. But it's over there. And um, and that's really the first like jury. As we think of like the BVI or Cayman today, like it's really like kind of like New Jersey in the 19th century is like where that sort of started. And then, you know, in the 20th century, um, it, Delaware kind of inherited that mantle from New Jersey, which is why uh, you, everybody sort of thinks about the Delaware LLC, Delaware Corporation um, today as, as like sort of the go-to place. And then, you know, Wyoming and Nevada and, and Montana kind of creep up for like, 
I think reasons similar to, to why you have uh, offshore jurisdictions in places like the BBI. And so, but one of the things, one of the distinctions, right, between New Jersey and the BBI, right, besides the quality of beaches, um, is uh, uh, that, that New Jersey is obviously a state, right? So there's, there's an arbitrage opportunity between different states in the US that's ring fenced by the US government. Um, and every state has their own administrative apparatus uh, that is, they're nominally sovereign, right? So they get to come wrong. Well, um, you know, with like the BVI, for example, in lots of other jurisdictions is what's known as a British Overseas Territory. Um, and so that means that like the BVI is a uh, part of the crown, like the head of state in the BVI is King Charles III. Be, and and there, then there is a sort of government apparatus that's like administered in like various different fashions locally versus uh, from the UK in the BVI. But one thing that happens as the BVI gains sort of this nominal independence, um, and the same thing is true in Cayman, actually much older, much older process in Cayman, is they get to have their own administrative apparatus, right? That they've kind of inherited from the crown and including the ability to designate juridical entities. And so uh, you see this with the US territories as well, right? If um, with mostly with tax systems, right? So the US has sort of decreed that Puerto Rico and the US Virgin Islands can have their own tax system, right? It wasn't, it's not a feature of the sovereignty of, of the US Virgin Islands or Puerto Rico that they can set their own tax rates, right? That's a decision that's made by the US government that emanates from the sovereignty of the US to its territories, which are really colonies, um, and they're allowed to administer their own tax systems. The same thing is true in the sort of remnants of the British Empire, right, which is where a lot of offshore finance lives today, that it's just kind of inherited the mantle of, of the what is in essence the British government to create um, entities, have tax systems, etc. Yeah, so let, let's fast forward or let, let's finish up, but fast forward through the rest of the history. Like, so you, you brought us to understanding what was going on before we had limited liability. Like we now understand that the first like creation of this offshore concept happened in the American colonies slash the American New World of um, like New Jersey, New York. Like, can you like fast forward us to... Um, like, I don't know, let's, yeah, let's just say like World War II, like while things are still very colonial, things are very imperial. And like, before we start talking about like really the modern financial system. Sure, yeah, I mean, I think that like you, you going, I think, I think the, the, the next step is like looking at post-World War II, really. Uh, I mean, you could get granular, but then World War II, but you have a new world order at that point where the US is centered, the US and the USSR is centered and like, the feature of, of the new world order at that time is like capitalism versus communism, right? And, and embedded in this concept of capitalism is this concept of the corporation. And so part of how the, and, and part of what the Cold War was in terms of the, it was a cultural battle largely between the US and the USSR, as well as a battle of economic systems. And part of that is this embracing of the corporation. And so the US for, you know, the second half of the 20th century had this like very strong incentive to like go to the other parts of the world and say, adopt our economic system, right? Which involves this concept of using juridical entities to limit personal liability. And so 
that's very much a feature of uh, the colonial world in the, in the second half of the 20th century, because it's a feature of American capitalism. And we wanted to see uh, countries uh, emulate that. And I think that like, actually fast forward into the late 80s and early 90s, um, where the idea of an LLC comes around, right? And so, uh, you know, I don't want to get like too technical into like legal jargon, but like, I think LLC is like, the distinction between an LLC and a corporation is like, uh, historically very important to understand uh, offshore finance because the idea of an LLC is we want to be able to make it super user friendly to create uh, juridical entities to limit liability. So corporations have all these formalities, you have to have a board, you have to have bylaws, you have to have shares, you just have to share a certificate. It is like a very involved process, right? And so where we get to, how do we get to today where literally in the time that I've been rambling about this stuff, I could have formed a Delaware LLC for you, right? Like, like literally in in that period of time. And and, and the the reason for that is like uh, we've become very dependent on these sort of like one off. I'm going to create a limited liability entity for like a very specific purpose. When we think of companies now, what we think of is a network of juridical entities like Pepsi, right? It's not one entity, right? There's hundreds of entities that make up Pepsi. Same thing with Apple, same thing. And even much smaller companies that have a, that have a global reach, especially. It's it's a network of, of, of companies. And that kind of, and that's the system that we have today, really. Um, and, and once you have this idea of these sort of capitalist hegemons uh, as like this network of juridical entities, it becomes very easy to see the necessity of kind of, you can think of these quote unquote offshore jurisdictions as almost like neutral jurisdictions, right? Where there's not a baseline level of tax. And so what, and so a big part of our financial system now is just kind of like sovereign nations of the world collectively like hashing out, well, to what extent are we gonna allow businesses to operate in no tax jurisdictions, right? And then the, for the, no, the, the it's interesting because the no tax jurisdictions themselves have a very limited seat at the table in this conversation because that's a conversation that's going on between like the US and Russia and the, and the, and the UK and the global superpowers. Well, the British Virgin Islands, little country of 11,000 people, is not actually invited to that conversation, but their ability to generate revenue by creating corporations is like dictated by that conversation. And so they're very much still, hate to say it, but they're very much still a colony in that sense. It's just not in the sense that it not in, in the sort of sense it was 200 years ago. Well, okay, this might be a little even too big, too big brained, but what does it mean to be a colony today versus a colony in the past? And like, do you think that our understanding of like the colonial system as this like very extractive, like take the resources, like um, very like mercantilist system is like fair I guess, I guess, like, in my head, it is really hard to understand colonialism through, like, the textbook way of, like, this is a thing that happened, probably bad, definitely a lot of suffering, but, like, it's something that we've moved on from, and I, I guess there's no question here, it's just... No, 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 actually, that, no, but I yeah. think that's, like, you're making a critical point, right, especially the point you're making about what is inherent to colonialism is this sort of idea of extraction, right? And, and extraction of resources, 
of capital and of labor, right? That is like classically what, what makes a colony. And we don't have that now in the same way, right? I think that if you talk to somebody who's like heavily focused on say Africa or South Asia, you know, there, there may well be more like remnants of that type of colonial system in those, in those geographical parts of the world. But there, it is still a system of extraction in these offshore jurisdictions, right? Because what, what you're doing is like, in the aftermath of, of the sort of colonialism of the, of the 19th and early 20th century that kind of ended with World War II, where in a formal sense, you had colonies being quote unquote granted sovereignty, right? So, you know, the BVI, I keep picking on the BVI, but it's fine. The, the BVI becomes a sovereign nation. And, uh, and uh, again, part of that is like this inheritance of the administrative state from the colonizer. Well, you can actually think of the use of offshore entities in the BVI or any of these small jurisdictions as a system of extraction, right? Because what, what is happening is that um, people and entities who are not from those places are extracting the benefits of having a uh, independent uh, uh, administrative state to especially to like shield identities in terms of like ownership and entities. And, and one of the interesting things, right, is, is uh, there's limits to it. And, and, and we have, and, and some of the limits are like um, defined clearly in the law and some are uh, uh, kind of implied. So, but like, there is a reason, right, where that, it's easier to go out and, um, or I shouldn't say easier, the consequences of forming an offshore entity in the BVI to hide your identity as to some economic activity are completely different from the consequences of um, bringing a speedboat full of cocaine from Venezuela to the BVI, right? And, uh, and I don't say this glibly because we have decided that we as in like the sort of global financial hegemons have decided there are certain markets and certain economic activities that are simply forbidden, right? Regardless of, of your corporate form. So like, I cannot form an LLC to sell cocaine. Like the government, the, the DEA is not gonna be like, oh, shit, he's got an LLC, you can't yeah. get him. Limited like, liability, you know, yeah. You know, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's not, and, and that's like a very intentional decision, right? So if we decided that we wanted to um, enforce uh, like bank secrecy laws in this in the in the BVI in the same way we enforce cocaine trafficking laws, the BVI would look very different. And and it's not it's not that we cannot make that decision. It's that we have not made that decision. And and that I think has to do with the entrenchment of these offshore jurisdictions in in the global financial system that we don't want to like knock them off that pedestal. Yeah, I mean, I guess like whenever you frame things in like the context of extraction, like at least more my head goes is like, okay, who's the victim, right? And I guess my th the the frame here or the, the 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 victim here would be like the people of BVI, or let's say Ireland, right? That just to be even like as concrete as possible, like the people of Ireland, like should be getting like 
fair modern taxes of, on corporations, right? Like, based on the amount of economic activity that on paper flows through Ireland, like, they should be making, like, incredible amounts of, like, tax revenue, which could create, like, a futuristic society and welfare states and, like, all of these things that would make, like, real people's lives better. And, like, maybe this, like, it, is that kind of... If, if we're calling this, like, system still today, like, s such a remnant of colonialism that maybe it's still colonialism, like, that is how we would say are, like, the negative externalities that are, like, being felt by the people? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that it's, it's, a, um, it's a little bit of a different analysis now, right? Because you have, and it gets to this, like, a question that I don't have the answer to, right? Which is, like, and it sounds like a dumb question, but I think it's actually important, right? Like, what is a fair corporate tax rate? You know, I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know the answer to that question. And in the U.S., we have an answer to it. In the, in the EU, they have an answer to it. Um, and in the BVI, they've decided the answer is zero percent, right? Or in Ireland, it's eleven percent. You know, and and um, and so the, you know, in terms of like what's fair and what's extractive, like. Is it extractive to like say that I have a company that's headquartered in the BVI, but it's got nothing to do with the BVI and there's not any real benefit besides the $3,000 a year that's paid into uh, the, the government of, of the British Virgin Islands? Of course it is, right? Because like if that company is making hundreds of millions of dollars elsewhere and escaping taxation by virtue of having been organized in, in the British Virgin Islands in various different jurisdictions, then like they're kind of getting one over on, on the BVI. But from the perspective of the BVI, I think they would say, well, no, like we have this really nice hospital in Tortola that's like basically paid for by the fact that we can get all of these, um, you know, registration fees every year from these different companies that we don't really know what they're doing and we don't really care. Um, so, it's, so I don't know that there's like, uh, from a moral standpoint, like a right answer to, to, to that question, like who's in the right and, and who's in the wrong. I think it's just there, there's like a competing system of, of, of incentives. And like, this is the part I think that gets really challenging, right? Is if we decide as the US or as Europe or whomever, really the OECD, a fair corporate tax rate is 20%, let's just say that, right? Then like, what are we doing then? We're gonna go to the BVI and we're gonna say, you have to charge corporations 20% tax rate. That's colonialism, right? That's, that's, the same, that's the same idea as being like, you're not really a sovereign. You can't really set your own taxes and create your own laws. This is what you have to do. And, and so it's not, it's not clear to me that that's better. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I think the, um, the answer to me is clear, right? Like this, we can still call this colonialism. We can still call this extractive, but like the frame has to turn or like realistically always is, um, the victims are the people of America <laughs> where that like, uh, like, or, or, or the countries where this stuff is actually made or whatever, right? Where essentially, like, the result of, like, the BVI or Ireland or whatever is that, like, the shareholders of Apple are able to retain, like, so much more value through these systems because essentially they're not paying taxes, right? And, like, and we, yeah, from the BVI's perspective, it's, like, the choice is either we allow this service and get our nominal fees or we don't. And, like it goes away and it, this is not in our frame at all, including the money. Like they're gaining from this, but like the people that are losing are like the 
<laughs> taxes, right? And I think especially too, once you you like really start to internalize like why people want privacy, there's a lot of good reasons to want privacy. There's like a lot of really, really bad reasons to want privacy. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's uh sure. I mean like it and, and when you get into like the nitty gritty of like why people want to use offshore finance, it becomes really ugly, right? And like, I mean, you mentioned at the, at the top of the show, like the Panama Papers, which is, I think, like how um, a lot of people, it kind of opened a lot of people's eyes to like the actual like breadth of offshore finance, in, in the sort of shadow of offshore finance in the, in the global financial system. Well, what, what was the cause, like what the Panama Papers actually were, is like Malta, it actually ties into citizenship by investment, right? So Malta um, has uh, is part of the EU, very small country in the EU, for people who don't know, small island in the Mediterranean, beautiful. Um, and <laughs> nice. Uh, and, and, so, uh, and so the, um, you know, there is a citizenship by investment program in Malta that is very relatively inexpensive compared to other European countries. And, um, when you take away the sentimentality of citizenship, right? What does citizenship actually get you? It gets you a passport, right? And what does a passport mean? Like my US passport does not mean very much. Um, actually, US is a bad example because of our immigration policies. But like, the, the, the like, let's say I'm gonna use a different country. <laughs> if I have a Canadian passport, like that passport means like relatively little to me in the country of Canada, right, where I am. But it means a tremendous amount when I travel. So, like, if I am going to, if I want to go to, uh, let's say France, right? The uh, my ability to get to France is totally different if I have a U.S. passport versus a Russian passport versus a French passport, right? And and like, and so the value there's a tremendous value, especially. Uh, for uh, people who are from author authoritarian countries, right? So China and, the, and Russia primarily, in having passports that are not issued by your country of origin. Because it, it is in fact a critical, uh, a critical piece of personal sovereignty, in fact, to have that passport, because it, it puts you out of the reach of the authoritarian regime in some sense. And so what Malta was offering to people from Russia um, was a was a was a way a relatively inexpensive. I mean, order of a half million dollars, which is like not nothing, but you know, there's higher numbers. Um, way to get a passport that allows you to leave Russia and enter the EU. So um, this is like critically important. But there is there was there's a need uh, within Malta to cover the flow of funds that is coming into Malta from these people who are acquiring Maltese passports because a lot of the people who want to get a Maltese passport have been involved in things which are sort of like very frowned upon in, in, in Europe and the US, right? That, you know, we have sanctions in places sort of stop people from, from doing this and many people who are associated with like state run, um, uh, companies in, 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 in Russia, et cetera. And so the Panama Papers come about because there's actually a Maltese journalist in Malta who's like, 
I think that there's like this source of like government corruption, right? Where they're using offshore entities in Panama. That's right, Panama Papers, like specifically a law firm called Mossack Fonseca, um, to uh, hide the identities of uh, not so much hide the identities of the people who are getting passports because you can see the passport, but hide where their money came from. You know, to to actually acquire, um, you you know that 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 passport, and that's like. Um, I think that people were like uh, justifiably kind of repulsed by the by like how much and like all these famous people who have these offshore who were like kind of doing the same thing that we associate with kind of like gangsters and drug dealers, right? But before that period of time, um, and so you, you you know when you have um, but you know what she uncovered uh, her name's Daphne Caruso. What 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 she uncovered was really just like the tip of the iceberg, right? And and so you have all these other like subsequent leaks that are kind of like organized by this group called the International Consortium. The International Consortium of International Journalists, the ICIJ. Um, and they keep this database of basically leaked information about, about offshore entities. And, um, and so, you know, it is like uh, very easy to be like, oh man, we should really put a stop to that. That sounds terrible. Like all these guys, Russian gangsters or whatever, using these entities to get European passports. So what? We just have them like stumbling around Europe. Like that sounds really bad. But it's the same system, right? It's the same system that like Apple is using, and and, and you know, all all of these other pe all of these other entities that were like kind of accept. And so, um, it's been uh, it's it's like it's very difficult to figure out like uh, where, where we want to draw the line or if we want to draw the line at all. And, and you know, I think that we've kind of settled on. We're not really going to draw a line, um, for the most part, for for using this type of, of offshore entity. And just I know we're running short on time, just to kind of like tie everything um, back into uh, into into DeFi and, and, and into crypto. Like it's the same concept, right? I mean, I, I mean, I hate to say it, I feel like I'm kind of like uh, throwing salt here, but like uh, it's it's. Uh, you know, it's it's actually like we have a system in DeFi, right, where it's like very unclear how it's going to be regulated, very unclear like which sovereign entity can extract taxes from these transactions and like regulate how the transactions function. And like, don't get me wrong, like all of the theories and arguments about how like smart contracts like represent a way uh, to like escape any type of regulation are interesting. And I, I think that ultimately they're like not going to, they're kind of non-starters, but like it is interesting discussion to have but like the reality is is like there's nothing like what probably the most popular entity right now uh for use in DeFi is the cayman islands foundation you know all all these protocols want to use the cayman islands foundation you can kind of get into why that is i don't think it's particularly interesting the details but like that's that's like what's desired desirable the point is it's got nothing to do with cayman islands right nobody's gonna go to cayman to like run a server, like your smart contract's not located in Cayman. And it has everything to do with the fact that like, you can use a Cayman Island Foundation to sort of like, not have a beneficial owner, right? In the sense of a shareholder and distribute that to, uh, to, to token holders, right? And so, you know, it's very much like, okay, we're just gonna like, lean into this system that exists for this purpose. And like, when you're there, you know, you're sort of leaning in, a bunch of other people are going to lean into that same system 
for like maybe purposes that are much more nefarious from our perspective than running a you know lending platform or whatever yeah no for sure i mean i think you're hitting on like a lot of good things here and i think um i've got some books to share at the end of this uh that for people that want to like learn more about this uh like yeah like th that's the crazy thing like you can totally learn more about this stuff um so i encourage you to like read books and like understand how it works but yeah i think like with our last kind of like chunk here our last slug like I would love if you help us understand, like, kind of, this is this obviously the same question, but two tracks, right, is one, how do you understand this offshore financial system as it is today changing based on everything from, like, the Russian sanctions and, like, how that is, like, we've entered a new paradigm of weaponizing the financial system to like just a more internet connected world and like both what that allows citizens to do and also governments to track. So one, how is offshore finance changing? But two, like where do you see DeFi um, as, if, and, and I'll, let's just be more generic, like where do you see cryptocurrency as a, um, as fitting into the, like the puzzle that we have today, which is essentially onshore finance, which as we've discussed, is really just each individual, um, like countries, like, you know, existing within their bubble, and then offshore finance as like the substrate, which makes all the bubbles flow amongst each other. Like, how do you understand DeFi in the pre Ethereum world? Or sorry, <laughs> I'm using DeFi crypto Ethereum, but yeah, like, yeah, blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm actually really excited to talk about that. Because I think that, um, it's very easy to look at um, Ethereum as, as DeFi, as a system of financial organizations. Uh, and also, I think it's very compelling, as, as you've talked about with other guests, to look at Ethereum as like a world computer, right? To look as, as like, and, and, and these are both important um, facets. But I think the other way to look at Ethereum is it presents new frontiers in terms of human organization, right? And uh, abstraction of, of human efforts. So, and so, one thing, I mean, DAOs have kind of become a meme, right? This idea of like, oh, I have a DAO. It's not okay if you have it. How is it decentralized and how is it autonomous? But like this idea that you can have um, systems that operate autonomously on chain with, with with either without or with limited human input is actually like a huge step forward that that uh, Ethereum has. And I think that like set aside the the sort of how bastardized it's become in a lot of ways, especially in the last couple of years, that there's a lot of DAOs that don't need to be DAOs, et cetera. But like at, at the heart of it, you actually have a way of, like if I create a smart contract that's uh, permissionless, right, and immutable, then that is just going to exist perpetually, right? As long as Ethereum exists, that smart contract exists. So as long as there's validators, then, then, it, then it goes on in the world. And I think that um, what, offshore finance right presents is there's going to be a new frontier i hope there's going to be a new frontier in in arbitrage right so we talked about there's tax arbitrage there's arbitrage in beneficial ownership well i think this is going to be and the cayman islands and, and other foundations kind of represent this the nascent step forward um there's going to be actually i think there's going to be arbitrage in human control of entities right and so the, I think that what we're going to start to see is that there's going to be jurisdictions 
that really want to embrace um, what crypto and I would say more specifically what Ethereum have to offer in terms of like, I said human organization, but it's really just, it's kind of like anti-human organization, organization without humans. And so if we can create uh, where we're not at yet, but where we need to be is we need to have the ability to create um, autonomous systems that have their own limited liability, right? And that I think is like the next stage in the arbitrage of, of offshore finance to where certain jurisdictions are going to start to create and you have U.S. states trying to do it. They've all fallen on their face, but they're trying um, to have uh, entities that can be fully embodied by smart contracts that are not controlled by anybody. They were created and put in the world by people, but are no longer controlled by people and have those functions actually represented by um, juridical entities, uh, I think is, is where things are headed. And personally, I welcome it. I think that that's actually gonna be a critical step forward in, uh, in human development. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we can like clear, like the idea that like nation state is like something permanent is like, it just laughs in the face of history, right? And like the, the concept of what we live in is like such a new idea and like we're watching it fail in front of our eyes like on a global scale and so like do i think that for like pretends the end of humanity like of course not like what i think it pretends is like the the beginning of a new era and i think like part of that era is that like we're going to figure out like which parts of like mass governance are great that is, all this stuff like in the u.s democracy blah 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 is so like clearly inherited from the sovereigns of Europe and like absolute monarchs and stuff. And um, yeah, man, I, I guess I'll, I'll like let you roll out on the answer to this question. But like, if you look at the world today, especially if you read the news today, like it looks like a world that's becoming more isolated, right? Like whether that's the Russia sanction and, you know, I have a thing in my heart for Russia, as you know, my fiance is Russian and like say what you will about Putin, but like, there, there's hundreds of millions of people there and like there's like mothers and grandmothers and kids and like um i just so anyway like if you read the news we're entering a more closed off space whether it's like what's happening between the u.s and china or um russia or whatever and like whether we're talking about offshore finance or crypto like those are both like huge like <laughs> they're technologies that like f tell sovereigns like we really don't give a shit at all like what you want to do in your house like we are going to facilitate like the transfer of money and power and people like despite whatever you want to do in your little like d d d d d like do you, do you see a world that um like these two forces are like clashing and fighting and like one's going to win out or do you do you see like the the per, do you see that like despite how like crazy governments are getting like we are still like moving towards this in a way like together yeah i mean i think that there's like tension and and it's it's going to become like more and more exacerbated between um censorship resistant money and sovereignty right and and like i use the phrase censorship resistant money because I think that the people who listen to this show like have an idea of like that those words mean something right and, and, but like, 
I actually think that um, conceptually, it's it's it goes a step further than that. It's actually anti-sovereign money, and and the idea of having uh, stores of value which are uh, cannot be uh, uh, revoked right by by the government and are not controlled by a government, I should say. So, um, you know, and, and and it gets like I think well beyond the scope of this of this conversation to talk about like how sovereignty and money uh, re relate. But I do think that there is like a strong desire um, for a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons to have money which is detached from any sovereign government, right? And like, you know, one of the things that's quite difficult about crypto, very difficult about crypto, is like when, when you talk about privacy and about censorship resistance and, and this type of thing, it's like you're walking into a room, right? Where like the point of being in the room is that it's either impossible or very difficult for the governments of the world to touch you in that room. And like the problem that we face, the like tension, like the internal tension that I think we face as an industry is like, we don't necessarily like everybody who's in that room with us. Like there's, there's definitely, you know, like nobody who's in crypto right now support, I don't think at least, supports like the government of North Korea, you know? Well, Lazarus might be the biggest user of crypto, so you're wrong on that one. <laughs> yeah, well, you're right. So, so yeah, I mean, I mean, it's like, if we have censorship resistant money, private money, if I have that, if you have that, that means the government of North Korea has it. And the government of the United States has it. And the government of the United States. And, and yeah, exactly. It means it means it's available to everybody. And, uh, and, and, you know, I think that it's like, that's a tough pill to swallow, right? And it's very difficult. I don't like, you know, nobody who's pro-privacy, I consider myself in that camp, wants to go out and like make a full-throated defense of Kim Kim Young Un. You know, it's like it's like no, that's not my guy. I don't I don't want to do that. But I'm like the best I can do is be like, well, I don't want the global financial rails to necessarily be the way that we attack him. And I think even that is very controversial. You know. And, and, uh, and so, you know, it's, um, but like, it's becoming more necessary for the reasons that you state, I feel, because we do, we are sort of seeing a, um, a fraying, if not a breakdown of like the nation state system where for generations we've had either a bipolar or unipolar world and we don't have that anymore, right? We're, we're, we're sort of fracturing into this multipolar world and um, I think that it will also it will be painful, but it'll ultimately be beneficial to everybody in the world if uh, part of that multipolar polar world is that nobody controls money. No, no, fair. And I do. I, I mean, you, I, you know that my thesis of Ethereum is like, bring it on, Gary, bring it on any of you people like it's inevitable, like that that is the technology that we're creating. And I guess that was basically what I was trying to bait out of you right here is that in a world where the old men in Washington and the old men in Beijing are deciding like we want multiple spheres and closed off and whatever, like the point of this technology, whether it's crypto or offshore finance is that there's so many more people than the old men sitting in those buildings. And like those people have sovereignty and agency 
and a lot of them are really 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 rich and have create and like are not fucking around <laughs> well right and, and i think that one mistake that we've made especially in the crypto legal community in the u.s is this idea thinking about decentralization as a um, as, as like a legal um endpoint right where like at some point we will be decentralized and that decentralization will be recognized in the eyes of the u.s government and you get some you get a pony or whatever for being decentralized um but it's like this is totally corny but i think it's 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 accurate like there's not actually a way to decentralization right like you just have to be decentralized and through being decentralized you can escape the grasp of uh, of, of of governments and uh, and 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 like you know i think that like um, I don't necessarily view, um, as this conversation probably indicates, I don't necessarily view like offshore finance as a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing. Um, but I think that like one of the facets of, uh, or one way that we can become more decentralized and have systems that are more decentralized is by embracing offshore finance, right? Is by embracing, uh, nations that are sovereign that have the ability to create entities types of entities that have different parameters so that we can get to a point where um we can actually have create like persons like persons who are not persons and who are not controlled by persons that like literally just exist um on chain and uh and and like that is going to become a uh, a sort of i think function of the of the self-sovereignty of of money and i don't i think that like it's the way that i see ethereum the idea that it's going to be a series of like cayman foundations interacting with each other like no i don't that's not where we're going but i think that that's an intermediate step mm -hmm. yeah man well we could go on forever so i will force us to stop but um so again i've got a couple books that i think are, would be helpful to understand this whole um world but do you have any like advice or thoughts of people that are just like interested in figuring out like what what is this system what does it mean how did we get here like if someone's interested what where would you send them so yeah i think that it's um i think that like one uh th there's like a lot as you said there's, there's been a lot of great writing on this um i think that the uh that, that there is uh a guy an author a piece of professor at brown he's a guy named peter andreas he's written a lot of books i'd say his general area of, of focus is like illegal markets. Um, and I think his writing, he, was, he writes about, um, well, he's written a bunch of different books, some are about immigration, some are about the global financial system. But like, um, he it does a really good job, I think, of like historically breaking down what illegality actually means when you talk about markets and control. And I, and I would just give him a, a, a huge plug. He's got, you know, it probably, I think he started writing in the 90s and his increasingly interesting awesome yeah cool and i just have one recommendation that's directly relevant it's a book called world for sale and it is it's a story of um like how like huge scale commodity trading actually works and like it is so much more like wild and cowboy and like just like people like needing to get on jets to show up to nigeria to yell at a customs agent to like get like oil through but like what you realize is like <laughs> all of our phones, everything, like the entire world works through this like very weird, like kind of janky feeling system that, um, you know, that 
I think you could argue that offshore finance was like directly created to support. <laughs> and so um, I think it's just like really useful to understand like some of the whys that are like beyond like, I don't want to pay taxes. Like I want I earn my money doing shady things or I want to use my money for shady things. So World for Sale is one. And then if you enjoyed the historical part of this conversation, um, there's a book called The Verge. And it's the thesis is by Patrick Wyman. The thesis is like, Modern finance was invented very specifically between 1492 and like 1540. And it's basically, he traces through the 1492, as I said, when the, the Spaniards kicked the Moors out of Spain. And like through that, they developed this, like the state realized that they could concentrate wealth. And then once you concentrate wealth, you're able to take these moonshots and which is what created Columbus, which created like empire, which created um, industrialization, created the printing press. It'll teach you like that Martin Luther was just the first troll on a new communications technology. It's like the same stuff that we're going through right now. And like, it really, that is the single most book that like leads me to like scream at you. Like everything on this planet exists because someone set it up this way. And so um, it's worth understanding like who set it up and why they set it up that way. So those are my, that's uh, not financial advice, but that's book advice. And um, Alex, man, just thank you so much for, for sharing your story, for sharing the real truths about the way the world works. And um, yeah, man, I, I hope we can continue doing this and like figuring it out, how it all works together. <laughs> yeah, man, I'd love to come back. And I just really want to uh, just, not just share, thank you for the opportunity, but um, it, to me, it's really, it's, uh, I really enjoy coming on and being able to talk about the more theoretical stuff, because I feel like a lot of conversations I have, people just want to like, how can I do this? How can I do that? And that's interesting. But I think the meat of it is that we got into today is the real interesting part. So I just really appreciate the, the opportunity. Well, when we hang up, I need to talk to you about my new perp exchange that I need uh, for my to hide behind a bunch of Anon PFPs. So bye, like bye, bye audience. <laughs>